head into the Ringerverse to stay up to date with all things superheroes and nerd culture entertainment. Hosted by a rotating lineup of superfans at the Ringer, including Mallory Rubin and Van Lathan, shows will provide instant reactions to blockbuster releases, insightful backstories on canon, and mind-bending theories, as well as fresh takes on the latest news and rumors. Check out the Ringerverse on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. I need supports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me on the other line... Prepping his prestige Felix Leiter spinoff. It's Andy Greenwald. Wow, that cut a little close. I bet, didn't it? That was there was a lot going on there. You want to unpack that for people? Well, Andy. So it turns out that Amazon has bought MGM for the price of like three European football clubs. First of all, how did you find out the news? Because I thought MGM promised that they would tell us when we dropped out of the running. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? Think, and so I it was. I, our problem was liquidity. It always is. But I thought we cobbled together enough, you know, debt ref- refis to kind That's of right. like at least get in the door. So Andy and I are recording this on Thursday afternoon. We're going to talk a little bit about Amazon's purchase of MGM. We're going to talk a little bit about the Friends uh, reunion, which is airing on HBO Max. And then Andy is going to talk about Top Chef with a guest with a mystery guest later. We don't know who that is yet. I, just I don't assume. even know. Yeah. Uh, so you'll be hearing this likely on Friday. Uh, Andy, how are you after the end of a, a glorious week in the United States? Well, I mean, as you said, it's Thursday, so I feel like this week could still redeem There's itself. There's a lot left, <laughs> lot left on the bone. Uh, I am uh, uh, concluding my time in Philadelphia, so I'm, I'm flying back tomorrow. Um, Chris, so are I, there any things that you like need to soak up? Like, do you? Because people know this. Like, I will fill a carry-on bag with green packages of her sour cream and oh i probably chips. will get a couple of that. things for a care package for both myself and you but i have to say like uh-huh. you know i've been i got you know in la i feel like i even though i treat my body as still like a trash compactor like i've i've definitely changed my habits enough where i you know like i'm like well i shouldn't have sugar after nine and uh and just like yes last night i was like walking down through my neighborhood and i like almost got a like a water ice. At, you almost got a water ice? A water ice. But maybe I'll treat myself tonight. I mean, who can say? Um, but yeah, so uh, head back to the West Coast, uh, if people need to know that. And uh, <laughs> Well, the talk- NSA already knows. I mean, yeah, your cell phone has been pinging like wild. TSA, wild. NSA, everybody knows. Uh, Fauci knows. But what do you think about um, this, this huge deal, this Amazon MGM deal? We talked a little bit about it. I think we were like, 
I think everybody is sort of just like, does this mean there's going to be a Bond TV show? Um, what do you think it means for Amazon? But I think maybe a little bit more general than that. Well, I think one of the reasons why I am struggling to have an opinion or a take or to contextualize it or to, you know, explain the reasoning is because, and not to sound too uh, galaxy brain about this, there doesn't need to be one. Amazon operates on a scale that despite our, you know, good faith effort to purchase a film studio in their stead, we cannot comprehend. Yeah. And so the headline is, you know, $8.5 billion, which, you know, by the way, what happened to the other half bill? Because last week it was $9 billion. <laughs> So good, good negotiating tactics there, Jeff. Um, they have it. They can do it. It yeah, doesn't matter. This is matter. what we always said what about it, Apple, too. I mean, Apple's just like sitting on this cash yeah. pile. So yeah. what else is Amazon going to spend that $8 billion on? Taxes? <laughs> LOL. So in that sense, they were like, we have a ton of money. There is a hole in our media business, which is legacy properties. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because... The half bill, by uh, the way, went to Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> They'd already spent that. That was pre, right. I mean, it, it's weird. We, we talk about how having a robust legacy library is crucial to the survival of these services. And yet, today we're recording Thursday. It's the one-year anniversary of HBO Max. Not a ton of subscriber growth in HBO Max. And HBO Max has HBO. It has you know other cool things like originals and hacks and Studio Ghibli and all that. But its main selling point, I think, to a lot of people was the deep, the deep uh, legacy vault, which includes yeah. Friends, which we'll talk about in a second, and but also all these movies. And I'm sorry, I mean, it's a loose statement, like a parenthetical around all these movies, but that's basically what Amazon just bought. Mm-hmm. And so that's nice. That's a luxury. I don't think it's a needle mover, but it's a it, 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 it firms up their position as a dominant player, but I don't think it was particularly in doubt. So I, I could be proven wrong because I don't understand the vagaries of the deal, but... HBO Max has this incredible movie li- library. They have their own properties that I'm sh- that, that and they continued to develop more and more Game of Thrones shows. Another one was announced. I think it was Ten Thousand Ships. Is that what it's called? Is like there was another HBO uh, Game of Thrones spinoff announced in development. But for the most part, like if you go to HBO and you want to watch a bunch of these movies, or even if you want to watch some of their legacy shows, it's it's. I don't think that HBO specifically owns the rights to those. Um, well, no, but, War- I mean, but I mean Warner has Warner does yeah uh, some of them, but. You know, Amazon is essentially buying the rights to start messing around in sandboxes, right? Like that is one way to look at this. And I think that that's I, I think the thing. Both. Right. So now they have Bond. Now they're going to have to negotiate with the Broccoli family about what they can and can't do with that. Now they have, I mean, everything from Legally Blonde to, to Bond to, I think they actually now have The Hobbit, which I wonder whether it was in a pretty was a big carrot for this because it, it allows them to build into the Lord of the Rings mm. stuff that they're doing. And maybe they can do like a spinoff show just about the guy who makes plates for hobbits and when the dwarves break them, you know? You're, you're, you're speaking my language. <laughs> Elvish? Love uh, it. So, yeah, I think that it's just such a fascinating deal. I wanted to ask it now. It was just announced that Jeff Bezos is actually stepping down uh, from his role as CEO of Amazon. He'll be stepping down on, um, on July 5th. Uh, his Independence Day. Uh, it comes <laughs> right after ours. But I didn't know if you got a chance to see that yeah. in the negotiations, uh, were, were, like it was sort of revived now because of uh, because of the, these negotiations and then because of this purchase. But someone kind of went back to this uh, this book, 
Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of the Global Empire. It was written by uh, Brad Stone. And I guess when he was, when Bezos was more involved with Amazon Studios, he was just like, making successful stuff isn't hard. Let me lay it out for you. So I wanted to present you with Jeff Bezos' 12-point plan to make a successful show, make tell a successful story. You want to hear it? I would I would love to hear it. All right, this is this is, you know, for his his this is his TV idea. A heroic protagonist who experiences growth and change. Okay. So that's like like who who doesn't want that, right? I mean, I'm I'm on board. A compelling antagonist. Mm. Wish fulfillment. I, the protagonist I prefer boring antagonist, but go on. <laughs> Wish fulfillment, e.g. the protagonist has hidden abilities such as superpowers or magic. Mm. Moral choices. Diverse world building. Parentheses, different geographic landscapes. That's that's definitely the kind of diversity we want. Like all of the change and upheaval in Hollywood has been like the topography of this landscape is too flat. I know. We gotta get Pete Dye to design this course. Civilizational high stakes, parentheses, a global threat to humanity like an alien invasion or devastating pandemic. Or a giant corporation that has access to all of our personal data and no obligations to nationhood or tax You know what? My mom was kind of banging on about this too, where she was just like, I don't want them. Like, because I got her the um, voice command remote controls. You did? Yeah. Whose side uh, are you on, man? Man or machine? I don't want them to know, like to listen to me. And I was like, they are listening to you. Like they know all of your, your sort of habits and stuff like that. The only thing Amazon knows about me is that I need carpal tunnel wristbands. You know what I mean? (laughs) When when you get down to it. (laughs) Um, Some some more of his points here. Uh, Right. So civilizational uh, high stakes, urgency to watch the next episode, parentheses, cliffhangers, humor, betrayal, Positive emotions, parentheses, love, joy, and hope. Negative emotions, parentheses, loss, sorrow. And number 12 is violence. So I read this and I was like, mm-hmm. is it possible that the only TV show Jeff Bezos has ever seen is Game of Thrones? It's also possible <laughs> that they never spent one second listening to him because Amazon made I Love Dick. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, not exactly checking any of those boxes. My main reaction to this is... Being rich is a trip, man. It's crazy. This dude is the richest person in the world. Respect. And now he's just like, here are some things I've noticed about movies. I've cracked the code. You need characters and ideas. <laughs> I'm gonna sit back and let you uh I'm gonna sit back and let you uh, you know, brain boys figure out the rest. It's but like you know that there's some guy who's just like a mid mid-tier exec at ABC just being like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. But I mean, this is, it's its interesting. The There was a lot of talk, you know, 10 years ago with the rise of Netflix and then Amazon. And then, you know, when Apple came in too, that, that the cultures of um, Silicon Valley and the culture of Hollywood were not compatible. And there are a lot of jokes and rabbit holes to go down here about the ways that they were unfortunately very much the same. But Generally, the idea was that Hollywood fancies itself in the creativity and ideas business, and thus having um, you know a whiteboard solution to everything that there ought, that you could code creative success was anathema to what Hollywood thinks of itself, and you know it, to me too. Like I, I think that that stifles creativity and all that. That said, what business are any of these people actually in? Right, because. It's great that sometimes some creative stuff slips out around the margins, but generally 
we are in a business where the most uh, preciously worried over and thought about and um, the most brain power hours spent on project is untitled Marvel film 2023. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it, 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 it's funny. We can make fun of it, and clearly he shouldn't be in charge of a writer's room or whatever because all that is incredibly basic and obvious and not actually insightful, but faux insightful and the kind of faux insight that you applaud when the person's saying it is a multi-trillionaire. But we actually are, that, that's basically the content factory we work for. I get better bathroom breaks than Amazon <laughs> workers do, but basically it's the same thing. Um, should we touch briefly on Friends before we get into Top Chef? Well, only to say... This is probably very on brand for our podcast and not very helpful. But as we were about to record uh, a day early, um, Kaya pointed out that the Friends reunion was had already dropped on HBO Max, and we haven't watched it. So this is feel free to hit, Kaya McMullen. Yeah, hit, hit skip. But I was like, I don't think we need to mention it because I don't think our devoted, kind-hearted listeners need to hear me be like that thing you love. Nah, because I, so I have you, no interest in this. You, but you are you nah, or are you not? Are you abstaining? I don't have any, I, I, I cannot stress how little interest I have in this, both because I, I, it, it's just them sitting on a couch patting themselves in the back for being funny. I don't get it. There's, mm-hmm. But also, I don't care about that show. I haven't watched it in 20 years. I, I, I love that people love it and like calm themselves with it, soothe themselves with it. <laughs> you don't love but that people love it. <laughs> it's nice. I like people to be happy, but I can't say that I feel like it's aged particularly well. Like I'll watch a Seinfeld rerun and be like, Yes, this is still right. purely funny, but my the appeal of Friends, which I did watch religiously in the '90s, was more like, "Hey, it seems pretty fun and cool to be fun and cool and living in giant apartments in New York." That's right. I'm I'm going to watch this. I I did like basically rewatch Friends during the last year. I think how do like, you have time? You are wait, you are fascinating to me. I don't. First of all, it's not. I think you every you night you're thing. crushing Superstore. You're crushing. No, Le you Bureau. don't understand how people like you and Esmail are like. Everybody needs to be quiet. We need to turn all the lights off, and I need to get my high definition television to show me right. the the temple of TV. Sometimes stuff is just on, you know. And like sometimes I'll come into bed, and my wife has an episode of Friends on her laptop, and she's looking at her phone or something. And sometimes and you grab wa- the laptop. <laughs> no, but we like like do you, so you don't so you don't watch TV before we you don't, go to bed. We don't have the TV on. Like one thing that I will say, maybe this may be a poor critic. You or poor, and you, you guys just are in prayer the entire the t- time. <laughs> I prefer the term quiet reflection <laughs> to whatever God is relevant in that moment. But the TV in, in our house is never on unless it is a specific like sanctioned time period, whether it's for the children can watch their shows or they can watch a movie or the grown child has been granted furlough to watch the Philadelphia 76ers for a period not to extend one hour and 55 minutes. But like, I understand that for a majority of households in America, it's on, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just on, maybe in the news or maybe there's a sitcom or maybe a sporting event. And that is not my experience. So I, I get that, that, that piece of like, Hey, look, why not is gone from my life. Sure. Right. It's still, it's still very present there. But, but but what's friends like for you now? Uh, This many years, like when you watch it, are you like, Hey, old friends. Um, or do you feel st- like it still had a community? You know, there, there's view a lot and- of stuff in there that hasn't like aged great, but I do think that that there is a overall style of that kind of joke writing and also just like I, I don't know. I, I think that there is like a very 
almost narcotic feeling to those kinds of shows sometimes. And especially in totality, like when you're watching them in big batches like that, or if they if it's just something that you have on, right. it honestly reminds me of like throwing a rerun on when I would come home from school when I was a kid. So yeah. to me, it's not like, well, I only have this many hours in the day. How the hell am I going to watch friends? It's, it's just not that deep. One thing that I am interested in is that like not beyond the fact that like most people's relationship with the actors and friends aside from Aniston right. really is through, this frozen moment in amber that they have is that friends for, for me schwimmer is always the cop and wolf that's right Sorry. but friends was like about the sort of uh totality of it rather than i right. think there are some famous episodes but i would never really consider myself to be like i need to like see a special about friends like i need to see like these people right. like I, interacting on like a superhuman level like I don't want to shit on this because genuinely I have very fond memories of the show. And we've probably said this at some point over the last however many, nine years we've been doing this podcast. But one of my most foundational TV memories is senior year, like senior year of high school. So like fall 94, um, my dad had gotten like a little Sony Color Watchman, which is what how you could potentially watch portable television in those days with an antenna and a prayer. And I, I don't know if I was allowed to or I just did, but I took it into my room on Thursday nights and I would watch the NBC Thursday night lineup. So I watched mm-hmm. the first season of friends and felt alive because it was so exciting and it felt racy and fun and sexy and adult and, and, and had that romantic serialization that was kind of new. And then into ER where I was like, you can put tubes there. Like it was a very formative experience. So I, that's my relationship with it. I don't want to besmirch it, but I also, maybe that's why I also don't want to revisit. After having just visited New York too, I am curious to see what the, what any updates they make to New York real estate uh, mm. analysis on this show. I mean, whether or not like rather than living near Central Perk, they're now in like an abandoned penthouse that's actually owned by a, a sultan, you know, <laughs> or some kind. Right. And so like the big surprise in season six would be the sultan comes home for the first time just to check on his tax shelter. And they've just been living there. By the way, yeah, that shows that's a free idea. Peacock. Yeah. Take it. Hey. That's a good. <laughs> we you know what? We didn't get MGM. We don't even need this one because we're liquid now. We got a lot of cash. Why don't we take, we, we could stop there. Uh, so just some housekeeping. Andy and I are doing, we did this. We've got Top Chef after this. Then on Sunday night, immediately following the Mayor of Easttown finale, we'll put up our episode of The Watch, breaking down the finale and our conversation with the creator and writer of the show, Brad Inglesby. Very excited for everybody to hear that. And then we are also excited to say that we are completing our Bureau rewatch deep dive podcasting. We'll be recording that next week. I'm not exactly sure when we're going to release that. So a lot of stuff coming from Watch HQ. We, we, we never sleep. Well, you're coming back to Watch HQ, thankfully. I am. I know. I'm on my way back. So we'll be on the same time zone. Safe travels, amigo. And podcast listeners, enjoy the suspense that I share with you that on the other side of this break is me talking about an episode I, of Top Chef I, I haven't go, seen I want you with to a do guest. solo. I want you to do solo chef. It, it crossed my mind. Did it? I'm going to be honest with you. I... I Yes. So you that, could just that's do like, here's some 10 talking points. I, I feel like once you light that candle, it's never going to burn out I did it once, man. It's, it's, it is really like swimming in the darkest dark of the ocean. <laughs> you think it's just water and it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So maybe, really maybe this hard. isn't, this might not be the week for it. So everyone get excited. Who knows? As always, we were produced by Kaya McMullen. We will talk to you guys on Sunday night. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, 
Then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Okay, we're back. I'm back. We left you at the top of a cliffhanger without knowing who my special guest would be for Top Chef. I'm so happy to announce that my special guest is the Carrie Brownstein to my Fred Armisen, or perhaps vice versa, <laughs> Uh, my old pal from Grantland, The Ringer's own, Juliet Littman. Welcome back to The Watch. Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to be here. I love talking Top Chef. I know. I'm so thrilled about this. I'm sure people remember that you were one of uh, the pioneering food podcasters with our mm. friend David Jacoby back in the day. I sure was. But, Julie, I feel like we've done this before. I feel like a couple years ago maybe we've talked about Top Chef, but it's been Definitely. a while. Yes, it's a long so, time. I expect heat from you that is more akin to the hotline that is normally in the quick fires than the <laughs> retro electric coils that our chef testants were forced to deal with in last night's episode. And so just for people, no, I'm sure they do know, but we're going to be talking about uh, last night's Top Chef and also Last Chance Kitchen, which is extremely relevant. It is canon and important to be watching for people oh, who yeah. don't really know that. Absolutely. Obviously. Duh. Chris and Kish is, is proof positive of that. Living proof. And Brooke. Brooke came yeah. roaring back too that way. That's um, true. So, Juliet, before we get into the episode, where are you with the show? Where are you with this season? Are you enjoying it? Are you finding the bubble nature of it a little bit odd? Where are you on the all-star judging panel? Bring sure. us up to speed. Love the show. I think it's like one of the best shows on television. Its consistency would win Top Chef every time. It, it nails it basically every, almost every season. It's, it's a great show. Um, I don't like the all-star judges, I think, as other mm. people do. I like them, but like I kind of think that these judges 
are all feeling themselves a little bit too much. Richard, oh. Richard Blaze and Kristen Kish are really feeling themselves, and I find it annoying. I'm just like, tone it down, guys. You were free to be on Top Chef. I understand it's a pandemic, but I just feel like they've got a lot of energy. Well, specifically on that point, before we get to Kristen, I think Richard is in a different place because Richard is basically everything he does is auditioning to be the host of something. Yes, so he, he he flips a TV switch that is very different, I think, from like Melissa who is or Gregory who are just, oh, guess what? They're just surprisingly delightful and charismatic. You know what I mean? They seem yeah. still like themselves. Contestant Richard was different. I think Melissa seems a little bit different too. She got that winner's glow. But oh, um, she had a major glow up in a lot yeah. of areas. Yes. Um, <laughs> Kish... I feel like is it, she's fascinating to me because first of all, where was she the first six weeks? And then Don't know. her, so she she was unavailable the first few weeks. And so, did they send Carrie home because they were just like, honestly, you were our second choice, or is she just still lurking? So then, Kish had a secret quarantine, and then came roaring in. And it just feels like she's trying to catch up energy wise. She's wild. Yeah, she's like making up for lost time. She was like definitely the meanest in the challenge, which we which we will get to in terms of the like people making the food. I just feel like she's. She's saucy, but I don't know. She just has a different aura about her than she used to. And I'm just sort of like, I I just sort of don't, when she, when contestants from Top Chef leave the show, I just sort yeah. of move on as well. I like to go to the restaurants, I do. And like, I've been to many Top Chef alum restaurants, but like- What's what, what's the best one? What was the best one that you attended and attended? I see, I, it's, um, the pandemic is so long, I've lost restaurant language. Brian Voltaggio's restaurant, Vault in Frederick, Maryland mm. is really wow. fucking good. Wow, I would expect nothing less, but that's nice I'd to see it. Him. And by yeah. the way, side note, one thing that I think will be interesting in the years going forward is I don't think we're going to see many Top Chef restaurants anymore. Mm. Like, Melissa, why would she open a restaurant? It's yeah. really hard. They almost all fail. You're tied to one place. She can probably make twice as much money and be three times as happy making like branded hats and sauce lines and doing Instagram lives and then yeah. doing TV stuff. So I feel like that era may be in the past. But That's an interesting point. Other thing that I think, and this is relevant for last night, is that there is still a line where a lot of these people are still themselves kind of genetically feeling like contestants. And so yes. had last night been, you know, Eric Repair and Emeril, who are much more used to being mentors, they would have been a little bit more forgiving and maybe in like better spirits about it. But I think Melissa hit it better. But Kristen Kish was just like pissed off yeah. to be serving something bad. Yes, that's a great point. Well, should we say what the challenge was? Well, let's, okay, well, let's, so, so now we know where you are. Um, let's talk about the episode as a whole. Before we get to the, the main challenge, let's talk quickfire. Okay. Um, and I think it's actually, we may, our conversation may bleed between the two a little bit because I don't know how you feel, but my sense of this episode was these were two very challengingly freeform assignments yes. that really proved how in their heads all these people were. Like Absolutely. I generally am super impressed with the producers and how they come up with interesting challenges that manage to be creative and also, you know, actually produce substantive food or, you know, bring something out of the the contestants. They had, they clearly felt they had to do a Portlandia thing. I don't think they really knew what this challenge was. I don't feel like I understood what this challenge was other than like, we will put in some old stuff and some cassava flour and then we'll just try to edit this to make Armisen and Brownstein seem funny in the moment. Right. Um, what was this challenge? How would you describe it? The challenge was do right by Portland cliches, essentially. It was like, take all of these like cliches about Portland and make a good dish, basically. Okay. That's, I mean, that's what it was, right? To like make a hipster dish? Yeah, but also that was so annoying. Like, what does that even, 
I know, it's, mean. It's, it's lazy is what it is. It, it's lazy. And Byron, like, well, he did this in the challenge too. Like, I don't think he even tried. Like, he was just like, I'm just going to cook something now. Yeah. Which probably I mean, wasn't a bad move. I like you, it better when they when they test out their their um, like chef skills a little bit more. Like, why haven't yeah. we have like a, a, a mise en place relay of any kind? You know, what happened to those challenges? I love the mise en place relay. Me I, too. I miss the mise en place relay. And like, um, let's shuck some oysters. Let's see how fast they can do it. We're in Portland, for God's sake. It is interesting. It might be worth asking the question because we are not... Um, I wonder if we've lost the mise en place rally as part of the show's gradual shift away from like the brigade system of like chefly mm-hmm. cooking skills towards more like put your story on a plate. Right. How creative are you? That said, when you watch these people, even people who we are going to dunk on later in this conversation, like fly through the kitchen and produce food, like these are all extremely talented people. I think they could oh chuck God. some oysters. Oh, absolutely. No, they, they, I mean, I think at the beginning of the season, Padma said it, like there are no sous chefs this season. These right. are all people who have their own restaurants, basically. Like these are all really accomplished chefs. And so they have to have the technical skills. There's no question about it. It's just, I think to your point, the show seems to value some of the like, mm-hmm. um, fundamentals a little bit less and a little bit more focused on on trends and food trends and whatnot. I I think also, like, um, one thing that's been really interesting is seeing Sasha had her run in Last Chance Kitchen and her just making really good, what I consider straightforward Italian food. That kind Mm -hmm. of has, like, no place on the proper challenge anymore. Whereas, like, more creative food gets a lot more attention. And it's almost like that's almost a reflection of the judges more than anything else. But anyway... I think it's really interesting. I think the the judges' tastes have changed. I think food culture has changed. I think the contestant pool has changed. And the language that everyone uses to talk about food has changed. And I think generally it's one of the reasons why I'm really high on the season because in, even before this quick fire began, you look at who's left. I mean, look, Joe Flam seems like a nice guy. He can probably mm-hmm. cook a nice plate of pasta. Nicholas Elmy from Philadelphia seems like solid dude. I bet his restaurant's really good. I don't find I didn't find them particularly compelling people or their cooking particularly compelling on TV because they were executing correctly and right. thus won. I would much rather see someone win with stewed turnips or um, a giant bowl of of pork and hominy soup than than that because it's I haven't seen it before and it's interesting sure. how they're getting it done. One more quick fire question before we get into the specifics of it: of the remaining contestants, there are seven. Did you have Dawn pegged as the biggest Portlandia fan? No, definitely not. No Incredible. way. <laughs> Incredible moment. Incredible moment for an Olympic athlete to suddenly start blushing and giggling at the sight of Carrie Brownstein. I, it, it was a thrilling moment for me. I love the Dawn arc. And can we just talk about Dawn for a minute? Let's talk about Dawn. Because Dawn and Gabe are peaking right now. So I feel like it's worth talking about them. I, I, I've, I really thought that Sarah and Shoda would be going to the finals. Sarah is mm-hmm. now in Last Chance Kitchen. Shoda is still going very strong. I now think Dawn is going to win. I just think wow. that. You think she's going to win? I do. I think she's going to win. She just pulls it out. Like uh, every episode, you're like, it seems like she's in the weeds and then she has a delicious dish. And I just think that she's like really creative. And she said something on um, this week's episode where she said like, I don't really make recipes. I make composed dishes. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like that's like winner's talk. And like, she's an Olympian. Dawn's a winner. And I, I just feel like she's getting this edit now where she's coming on strong and we are kind of like mm-hmm. go, still going up on the on the Dawn arc. And I, I think she's going to win. I think it's a very, first of all, this is the hot take that I want from you. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Boiling, boiling from the kitchen. Um, I think that we, it's interesting you say that she seems like she's in the weeds and she's winning. Remember, first two weeks, 
she didn't get food on the plate. Yeah. And then she was perpetually in the middle. She's getting better. She not only is getting better, she seems to have, and maybe this comes from, I mean, the, the, the corny edit would be this comes from being a professional athlete or something, but, and I'm not above using it also, but like she seems to be humble enough to learn and improve, which I think is important and not just bluster through things and keep making the same mistakes, which is something we can say about the person who went home this week. I think that Dawn is coming on strong. I, I'm not sure. I, I would put her in the top. Well, maybe we can we can discuss this at the end, what we think our final odds are. But I, you mentioned your former top two. They're mm-hmm. still my top two. And Sarah, we can talk Shoda. About, Sarah and Shoda. Sarah and We can talk about that. Um, so quick fire was kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's bizarre hearing um, uh, Fred and Carrie also talk about like texture and stuff. And we're like, do they tell you? I was just like, do they tell you to say that? Like, I don't think that's how Carrie Brownstein and Fred Armisen eat and think about their food. But like, as fans of the show, do they like know the the watch words? I don't know. I thought that was weird. A million percent, they know the words. I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you. I feel like they definitely talk like that. I okay. feel like if you went out to dinner at uh, Brian Voltaggio's restaurant, I feel like they would be all about talking about the textural components of a dish. Okay. I feel like they, that they're very Portland. Sure. I feel like that's, that's, I feel like that's earned. I don't um, know a lot about either of them. That's not really my, I'm, unlike Dawn, it's not really my speed. <laughs> Do you think, I, well, the thing that I want to know, and we all have no answer for this is, what was their quarantine situation? Because clearly they were working together, but it seems like to enter the Top Chef bubble, you had to fully quarantine for like 10 days. Did they quarantine for 10 days just to eat a Hasselback purple yam? They must have. I, I don't I mean, see an other way around it. They must be huge fans of the show. I mean, there are a lot of Top Chef heads out there. Yeah. I, I mean, I would do anything to be a part of any version of Top Chef, even these new, you know, spinoffs that they're they're pushing. But I don't know if I have like just 10 days to burn. You know what I mean? To be like... Well, it was the fall. There was it was a slower time. I don't know. Okay. Now you don't, but maybe you did in October. Okay. Well, we'll 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 conference in my my wife and family later to discuss okay. the finer Find points out. of that choice. Okay. So we move on. Uh, Dawn wins a quick fire. Her advantage is one that we don't really see as an. I mean, it, they never reference it again. But she gets a little extra time for her fifteen more her, minutes. Fifteen yeah. more minutes for a challenge. So then there's a little downtime and talk where we learn that Juliet's former front runner, deposed front runner. The clubhouse favorite, Shoda, has a kid. Has a kid. How did you feel about this? This is the reality part of the show that you can speak to better than I can even. How did you feel about this reveal, this edit, Um, everything? He has an eight-year-old in Japan, which made me Mm -hmm. want to look up Shoda's age, which I have not done, but I was curious about (laughs) about how old Shoda is in relation to his son. Um, I just wanted so much more info. I was like, you can't just drop that, and then we move on. I mean, he said, we, we know that he sees him two times per year, and he hopes to see him more. Um, and I just have like tons of questions, like just so, so, so many. So that's, you know, my um, intrusive, prying, gossip prone mind at work. But I can I only mean, be I, me. I mean, the takeaway clearly is that his son's mother is Japanese, not yes. Japanese American, and is either unable or unwilling to move to live in America and showed up, has businesses in America and family in America also. And yeah, cetera, I was going to say, Shoda is also unwilling or unable to live exactly. in Japan. Yeah. One of the things, and again, this was a tender moment for him. It was very sweet. I'm a huge fan. I love his cooking. I love his whole vibe. He was like, I hope in the future to find a way to be nearer to him. And I was like, bro, there's still only one way. I know. You know what I mean? Like, unless you both agree to move to Hawaii, it's not as if there's a more convenient commute across the Pacific Ocean. 
Right. I, I know. That's why I have so many questions. I'm just like the language that he was using was so like um, delicate almost. And I'm just Very like, what, delicate. what's going on here? So I, I'm just left with tons of questions. It was interesting. Usually when you get like a family reveal like that, it means that the person's in trouble. So I was right. glad that was not the case. Shona's obviously incredibly talented. He, I mean, also, you know, we also learned, I guess we knew, but it made most, most clear this episode that he trained in Japan working at Izakaya. So yeah, I mean that, you know, that was major reveal and I, it definitely confirms to me that, I mean, it's obvious from his cooking, but Shota must go far. I'm sure like we'll get some more family stuff. Um, I don't know. A lot of the family stories are really touching. I have to say. Oh God. Yeah. Byron talking last week about how he was, um, a dreamer he's a, was he's a dreamer. Just like I lost so it. Mo- yeah, so moving. And I find Maria's talking about her family like really moving as well. Um, I don't know. It's just it's a very like a very great cast. They did a good job. I agree. And the emotional storytelling. I mean, th- this is what the show is more about. And frankly, I just like it more now. Like I think that these are people who are much more in touch with their emotions, and that's obviously on the plate as well. Yeah. But they just seem like more successful human beings than a lot of contestants we've had in the past. And the beauty of a show like this, you know, that p- keeps putting this in the ringer is Maria, we just, I just feel like I, this this is unfair, but this is reality TV. I know her more. And so her prickliness, her toughness, her attitude, her defensiveness at times, like, is part of the larger picture. And I, f- I feel like we've been given insight into it, which I'm grateful for. And, you know, I love her now as much as her cast, fellow cast members seem to. Yeah. L- last thing about Shoda, other than... Uh, Will Farrell as Ashley Schaefer on Eastbound and Down. I've never heard a grown man refer to his boy so much. <laughs> that was a very interesting phrasing. You know what I mean? When he was like, <laughs> yeah. when he was saying like, Gabe, how old are your kids? And Gabe's like, my kids, because that's a word that I choose to use, are these ages. And he was like, eight, same age as my boy. My boy is eight. It was very intense. Um, the whole okay, thing so is we moved. Left, left me with questions. I have to say, so, I thought you were going to mention Shota's laugh. He laughed so much. So much. Although not as much as Sarah, as I noticed in Last Chance Kitchen, whose nervous laugh is really like bells peeling. Um, So this challenge, interesting challenge, a very challenging challenge for for two reasons. One, too much freedom for these nutcases at this point. Way too much. They are not doing well without guardrails at the moment. And I'm not sure if that's representative of these chefs in particular or this point in the season. Because in my memory, this is the post-Restaurant Wars lull is when a lot of champions have tripped up. Like this is even when Melissa was starting to mess up a little bit in the All-Star season last year. Um, And then the challenge of actually writing a recipe for a home cook, which is the dirtiest word you can say to any of these people, the home cook. (laughs) I mean, they are, it's so beneath them. They think think we are just troglodytes who are incapable of anything, which might be true. Um, Totally insane choices by some of these people. And I want to- Can I start, like, Julia, you're on Top Chef. Okay. And you're given this challenge. Immediately, where does your mind go? Tell me. Because I feel like you will have, as a normal person, (laughs) will have a normal response to this. I would definitely do Italian food. I'd do like spaghetti and meatballs or like chicken parmesan or like a a crowd pleaser. Yes. And moreover, something people have heard of. Maybe it doesn't have to be Italian. Maybe it's like pad thai or like, I don't know why you can keep doing noodles, but like. Because people like like, noodles. Right. Or like a salmon dish because like salmon's affordable and sustainable. Like I don't, they didn't really make choices based on what people do in their regular lives. Probably because they don't have regular lives. They don't know what it's like to be like a normal food eater. They're just like, they're chefs. I mean, I remember it may have been our ringer buddy, Dave Chang, that 
that I first really learned this from, but I, I feel like at some point when Momofuku was really blowing up in the early 2000s and he was like, here's a picture of my refrigerator at home. And it was yeah. completely empty except for like one bottle of Modelo. Like he's right. like, I, I don't even use my stove or oven. I don't know how to cook for people. Like right. I just work at a restaurant. So I get that. Um, but the key thing to the dishes you're saying, is not just the familiarity or perhaps the ease of execution. It's that it's possible, it's even for us to imagine making them taste really good. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's for, for the anyone possibility, yeah. To Absolutely. make them taste really good. Like, also, every yeah, everybody looks in the book. I mean, everyone buys cookbooks and with ambitious recipes in them. And maybe some people read the ambitious recipes or look at the pictures or maybe, maybe are inspired by some of the recipe choices. But what everyone really does is looks in the index for where the salmon and chicken recipes are. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, I usually cook this with lemon, but this says limes. And that's it. You cook it and you feel excited. I don't know why. Why was this so hard? I don't know. And then like, so so Byron did like a four-page recipe with like so many ingredients. The other thing is they didn't take into account like cost and like availability yeah. of of uh, ingredients. And I think that should, I think the judges should have thought about that a little bit more. Because like if you've got 30 ingredients and in like this like esoteric, highly specialized recipe, I'm not making that. It's like a huge investment in something I probably won't even be able to make very good. I mean, let's just talk about the screw-ups first. So you, you met, yeah. let's start with Byron. Byron makes the hardest, most expensive and challenging time-consuming dish that doesn't even taste good or is interesting. And there's a moment there where someone needs to grab him and be like, I'm sorry, the end result of this is steamed fish on a bean? Right. Because <laughs> also, for people like us who watched Top Chef and Last Chance Kitchen back-to-back, as we learned from a furious Kwame, right? Like Kwame, Kwame's disdain for the people and the dishes he was cooking was incandescent this week. I and I kind of loved it. 12 ingredient fish stock to begin. Now, on Last Chance Kitchen, Sarah had 10 minutes to make a stock and braise turnips in it. And she used Swanson's beef stock from a package. Incredible. And so relax. You know yeah, what I mean? Seriously. <laughs> Dude, relax. And the dish wasn't even good. It didn't taste, that was crazy. Um, crazy. I, I got to single out Jamie here too. Okay, I had a question attention. about Jamie as well. So carry on. Now, here's a caveat. I don't like sweet things. I so love I, sweet I, things. I, love. I, and, and so, so we can we can go back and forth about this. I, I didn't understand anything about what she chose to do, but like why she was like, this is a great idea. A soggy waffle is where we're going to begin this dish. And then, and then when she was talking out her thought process, she's like, I figured people could make a, so she's like, people make waffles at home. I'm with you so far. People make compote at home. You lost me. She's like, and then put a piece of foie on top. Why? Why would Disgusting. anybody do that? Disgusting. I mean, I understand. And, it's a classic uh, pairing, sweet and foie gras, but like what? For a home cook? I love compote. I like Belgian waffles. I like French toast. I like all of these things. Do you and make them at home? No. And the way mm -hmm. she put them together just sounded disgusting. I'd love to buy a compote, but I almost never make it. It's very hard. But also, but also Juliet, she was like, the best way to make this appealing is a black smear at the bottom of the plate. It was super weird. It looked gross. It sounded gross. It apparently was poorly executed. It, Although her recipe writing was good because the um, the chef that had to make it did it very similarly. I think it was Gregory? That's true. She did make Greg a good recipe. Yeah. It, it's just also bizarre that this many weeks into the season where they have been, they've received, I think, very partly because of the consistency of the judging panel, unlike past years, they've received very consistent feedback throughout. So right. they haven't been told mixed messages. And part of the feedback that I feel like Jamie would have received right now is she's excelled anytime she said the words in some context, like my mom did. 
Right. Like that always wins for her. Now, right. I don't want to put her in a box where she only has to cook Vietnamese-influenced food, but it's a cookbook. Right. Like, this is I what know. you're good at. It's and people true. love Vietnamese food. What are we doing? It's, true. <laughs> it's a great point. I do, I do love Vietnamese food. It's a great cuisine. Yeah, everybody's excited. And then it's just like, oh, this friendly person can make a recipe for dum-dums like me? Great. Also, are uh, there no. are there any like really popular breakfast cookbooks? I'm not an expert, but like when I think of like the really popular cookbooks in the world, breakfast ones yeah. don't jump out to me. No, I mean I'm sure they I'm sure exist and yeah. people, but and, like Ina's got some good like egg souffle or frittata recipes, of course. For sure. Yeah, but for it's sure. Not, like it's just yeah, it, it was a bizarre choice from her. Super bizarre. The, also, I think we did think we see the, her make the waffle. I didn't really see that. We never saw it. But I think that what you're also speaking to is something crucial here. It's probably not a robust market because I I know a waffle with foie gras, like that could be a show-stopping dish in a tasting menu or whatever. But for the common home idiot cook like myself, waffle, oh, this must be a breakfast thing. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm not searing and deveining a lobe of foie gras before my kids wake up. Like I, I don't understand. I don't understand the context. So another screw up. Yeah. Another, another total screw up. Then we should probably talk about our boy, Chris. Chris, his time finally came. So maybe you could give me some larger reality show context here, because as, as you know, and our listeners know, this is the only one I watch. But there is something that is psychologically fascinating, illuminating, and compelling about watching someone who, I, I mean, Chris just seems like a lovely guy, and I wish lovely. him success. He seems like a really talented cook and even better person. But it's pretty wild that my guy ran at pasta three times. And crazy. Speaking of consistent feedback, it's not like you did this, like it was didn't come together today. They were all straight up like, you don't know how to make pasta. It's always bad. And he did it again. The conclusion about Chris is that he doesn't know how to make pasta, but he tries anyway. And it's really weird. I don't know why he does it. I it's it's really strange. It's almost like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing where like yes. he keeps going back to pasta. Someone in his life must love his pasta. Someone must be lying to him. Oh, that's nice. That's my, that's my assumption. Oh my God, that's so dark though. For a minute, I thought that was sweet. <laughs> and then I realized he's going to come back from this quarantine to his wife in Vermont. And he'll be New like- New Hampshire. Milford, New Hampshire. Thank you. Juliet is our East Coast correspondent reminding me- Well, they're very different Which state states. is which. They're very different. Okay, but geographically. Yes, they're neighbor states, but I would say they're they're very different. Anyway, I carry on. I, I think you're right. I think Bernie Sanders would agree. Yes, um, I think so. And Gene yeah. Sununu. <laughs> yes. Okay. Should we, just, should we just keep naming people? <laughs> just politicians. Carry on. From, um, was Jim Jeffords from up there? Anyway, um, yeah, it was bizarre. It, it also was something that can happen on Top Chef that I think just even from scanning the internet a little bit today, still 18 seasons in drives people crazy, which is, although it's not a surprise, Yes, yeah, Sarah's a better cook than Chris. We know. But she screwed up, and they judge it on the day. And he made that ice cream last week. Like, yes, right. he was dodging a bullet multiple weeks, and it felt inevitable, and it was almost a mercy at this point because yeah, God absolutely. knows what kind of bucatini he would have tried to handcraft next week out of cassava flour or whatever. Can, but, I, I have to say, I think the bigger injustice from last week is that I thought Gabe should have gone home. I thought that oh. Gabe actually only made one dish, and then he made the extra tostada that was not well-received. The and, extra tostada was a thing, yeah. And I hate when people do extra credit and, like, think or, like, do unsolicited extra credit and get 
points for. And I felt like mm-hmm. he should have, that should have been held against him that he spent his time on something that he didn't have to do instead of making the whole meal better. And like, I was just like, when when it was happening, I was like, why is he only making one dish? And like, Sarah's doing so much work. Anyway, so now I have a vendetta against Gabe, but that's my take. It's a good point, but you know, maybe he's the, maybe this is the moment to pivot anyway, which is yeah. Gabe seemed to be the only one who understood this challenge on any level. And he seemed I, to have I, nailed it. it. Not only, I mean, what what a saucier. What a saucier he is. <laughs> what a casual quote Richard Blaze threw out, just on the tip of his tongue always, about the saucier <laughs> being the soloist in the ensemble we call the kitchen. That guy's a legend. Um, but I one thing I appreciated from the judging panel was their comments that this was a showstopper. This was a festive dish. This would have been on the cover of a cookbook. It's like people's understanding of the challenge was so convoluted and limited. They were like, we need yeah. to make something we were going to make anyway, then somehow communicate it for dum-dums. When people buy cookbooks for different reasons, they don't necessarily buy it for a weekday dinner. Sometimes you buy it for that party thing that you're going to try when you have a whole day to do it. And that seemed to be what he was doing with his Veracruz-style fish. And, you know, and, and Gregory, good sport Gregory, two dishes, no Seriously. complaints, did a good Gregory- job on both. I'd want Gregory cooking my dish for sure. I, that, I, that was my qu- next question. Who, who would you pick from that definitely team? Definitely Gregory. He was the most affable and most amenable. I would say I would want Kwame the least, followed by Kristen, followed by, I guess, Melissa. Melissa was, I, Melissa's just gotten sassier. I feel like also, you know, I'm, I'm happy. Everyone loves Melissa, right? Uh, yeah, I can't. I mean, you're treading on dangerous ground here. I feel like you're ready to, no, to take I a like, shot well, at the queen no, or the no, king. No, no, no. No, no, no. Lo- love Melissa. She's great. Everyone loves Melissa. She is... I mean, one of the fun things about this show is she's almost unrecognizable from the Melissa that was on the, was it the, the Boston season? That Boston, she lost, that yeah. Were made, uh, um, yeah. With Gregory and uh Who won Boston? May. I don't remember. May. Oh, May, right. Yes, May seemed like she was very good. People love May's fried chicken sandwich place here in LA now. Daybird. Haven't been there oh, yet. Oh, wow. Cool. Lines down the block. Um, so, right. So, Gabe's, Gabe did really well, and I thought the Maria situation was interesting because, as she said, she is incapable of writing a recipe. The I, I mean, I, I I didn't have any problem with Kristen being like, this is insanity, because there was like eight pounds of meat. Yes, it did seem like insanity. Um, but I also think that this was, maybe this was the nature of the convoluted, uh, maybe this was the convoluted nature of the challenge. Once again, Maria was like like Gabe. Maria was praised for a cookbook attribute that wasn't necessarily laid out or explained to them, mm-hmm. which is use this opportunity to give people something simple and hearty and wonderful that'll make people happy that they might not be familiar with. And people right. like soups and stews, right? right? I mean, it's not complicated. And this is sort of what we were saying about how Jamie screwed up. Like Jamie wrote a good recipe for something nobody wants, right. whereas Maria wrote a bad recipe for something everybody would be thrilled to have, right? And and I was glad that they ultimately judged based on how good the dishes were. And then, you know, it, which almost made the challenge like kind of silly. And to your point, like almost like too freewheeling because they did mm-hmm. say that they judged both the winner and the loser on like the best dish. And mm-hmm. Gabe just ended up winning, not just ended up, but like his was most suited to the cookbook idea. But it seemed like he also just had the best dish. Yeah. And ultimately, that's really what they were looking for. Yeah. To, to, our, or to our point about how the contestants have changed, I wonder... In traditionally, the final episode, the final challenge is, you know, cook the meal of your life. Mm-hmm. And it's a multi-course dinner for, you know, distinguished guests. 
And I'm very curious to see how that will turn out this year because there are still contestants like Gabe, who's worked with Rene Redzepi when they did Noma Mexico, or um, Sarah seems capable of doing, Chris would have seemed capable of doing it to, to, to execute a traditional multi-course tasting menu. Dawn seems capable of doing it, as you said, composed dishes. But um, Byron has that background. Maria makes delicious plates of food. Yeah. Or big bowls of food. And right. should she make it to the finals, it'll be interesting if the judges are able to calibrate their expectations and their taste if it's her versus someone who's doing something more, quote unquote, fancy and traditional. Right, right. That is a good, that is a good point. Also, they can't travel. So like, what will they do to make it interesting, basically? Oh, right. Like, it, that, didn't, that didn't occur to me. I feel like they've done such a good job of hiding the situation for the most oh, part yeah. and making it feel as exciting and stakesy. But Un- until Last Chance Kitchen, which was the dumbest conceit ever. Okay, so we're, we're about to get, I think we're there. Dawn <laughs> had extra 15 minutes, made something that seemed fine. She was like, yeah. I made my sauce Salmon. too sweet because I want it to match with what, um, who made hers? Was it, was it Kristen again? Mm-hmm. Uh, or uh, to ma- I want it to match. But then the judges were like, one of these was too sweet. And so, but it seemed unanswered whether did Dawn self-sabotage and Kristen course corrected because she knew it was too sweet? Question mark. There was a lot of like, there was some confusion because Kwame's like, I guess I'm just searing this pork belly with no oil because that's what I'm told to do. And I assumed it was going to be charred and blackened. Me too. But I thought f- it was like going to hurt Shoda or something like that. But it was that. fine. But it, yeah, it's totally fine. Oh, and we didn't talk about Shoda's dish looked awesome. Shoda's dishes always look awesome. It's He's, what I yeah. want to eat the most. Great cook. Okay, so, so no drama. It was time for Chris to go home. Last Chance Kitchen. Another trip to Bizarro World. And maybe this was just because part of the management that they had, obviously the testing and the bubble, huge challenges, logistical challenges. But I still believe, I don't know where you stand on this, one of the major challenges of the season was keeping Tom happy. Because Tom oh, seemed interesting. very sad, sad hats, uh, distracted, obviously, trying to save an entire industry from, from his hotel room. But I feel like they were just trying to get him going, and I, I guess he likes to drive cars. So... Well, I felt they were trying to keep BMW happy. I think that like probably there was very hard to work in BMW when they're not really like going a lot of places. They, Good point. You know, they only have a few options to drive up to the front of Whole Foods. Like being in a car isn't necessarily part of every episode. So I felt like they really went all in for BMW and that also made Tom happy. Um, to- the challenge was make a dish and th- instead of having a timer, Tom is going to drive 10 laps in this BMW around a nearby racetrack. And then when he arrives, you have to be done, basically. It was really bizarre. Um, they, have, they have like 15 minutes. Do you, I mean, I don't, car stuff, <laughs> I don't understand. I just don't understand. I don't want to drive things fast. I don't get it. I. But also the edit, like, was he driving fast? Like, were no they laughing because he wasn't? Was it hard? Was he not wearing socks? It looked like he was just wearing a pair of like, like Vans. Weird Should you be driving fast without socks? I I, I, I was I don't glad know. he was wearing a helmet, but I thought he was going to get on like a motorcycle. I didn't know he was just like getting into a BMW SUV. It was super weird. The whole <laughs> thing was weird. I also was ready to be like, I, you know, I respect the the trickery, but clearly they filmed him at a racetrack and then just ran the tape and he was standing outside ready to come in. And then someone was just, Sarah was just like, oh yeah, there's a racetrack right there. Yeah. I've been to Portland. I don't remember the prevalence of urban racetracks near hotels and sound stages, but, you know, what do I know? So about that, um, look, Sarah, Sarah's peaking. I, I think that it's actually sometimes for certain contestants who have certain blind spots or flaws, 
Last Chance Kitchen, running that gauntlet can be incredible. It can be, Absolutely. it can light a fire. And we're talking about everyone having too much freedom and they keep screwing up. Last Chance Kitchen is breathless. It's highest, highest of stakes all the time. And there's no time to sabotage yourself, really. You just got to commit. And I think that this is folk, This is sharpening Sarah like a blade. And mm-hmm. I think that she is going to cleave through whoever else drops down to face her. And she's going to come into the finale with a head full of steam and be in the be, be in it till the end. That's my feeling. I, I feel like, she, I think she's coming back and going into the finale as well. I, I They must have had a, been really bummed to get rid of her last week. It's obvious she's so much better than most of these chefs. I mean- She's also just really different and unique, and the plant and the plant mm-hmm. forward stuff is like interesting. And I say mm-hmm. the plant forward stuff. She's great with cooking vegetables. And You've been, you were in LA too long, Juliet. Seriously, although her food seems great, like I, I really want to try it. But yeah, I I agree. I think she's definitely coming back. If she doesn't, be a real shame. Um, and I think the final is is Don Shoda and Sarah. I do you, so you think Gabe is going to be, is he going to get in his own way? Is he just going to be outcooked or outclassed? Because he, he, I think he is peaking in a way at the moment. You know, the his, his consistency. Yeah, the saucier. I think that ultimately he doesn't have the same range as some of the other chefs. Mm. Um, I think there's a reason why his sauces are like so noted. Um, mm. But I don't know. I, I have like an anti-gay bias, I, which is weird because I love Mexican food. But I mean, who doesn't? But um. I don't know. I just think that he doesn't have the same consistent. I mean, except for, you know, Sarah's bad uh, restaurant wars. She's really been excellent. I think he's not quite as consistently excellent. Do you know what I heard recently? You know, the great Jacques Pepin, the Mm. the legendary French chef and American chef, really, who's taught a generation how to cook French food. When he was asked what cuisine, if he could only have one cuisine for the rest of his life for every meal, what would it be? And he said Mexican. I mean, Mexican food's amazing. It's it so good, especially it's, like authentic Mexican food. The, probably the, the best. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think, I, I, you know, curveballs can come, and it looks like they're they're. You know, I usually don't watch the next on, but I did, and it looks like they might be doing like a sudden, like sudden death elimination, either mm-hmm. in the quick fire or something. So we might have a double elimination week, which would increase, you know, make things more difficult for Sarah. But it's hard to imagine a final four that isn't. Uh, Gabe, Don, Shoda, and Sarah, and some combination. Um, yeah, great. Uh, they're, they're just there's just a difference, and and I think that you know in his defense, like Byron seems like a really good cook, but the gamesmanship part and the planning and the plotting and the, that whole piece of it doesn't seem to quite be there for him. No, it doesn't seem like he um, has also like the same kind of compositions. Like they, his plates don't come together in the same way. It does seem like he's a bit of an overcomplicator as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so your pick right now, you think Dawn is winning this season? I think Dawn is show? winning. I do. See, I, I still think it's Shoda. Okay, well, Shota. truth and time will tell all. That's a joke from The Hills. You don't know that because you don't watch reality TV. No, but thank you for bringing it here to me. You you <laughs> know what? You're, you're, so bringing your, you're bringing your cuisine and putting <laughs> your story on a plate or a microphone. I appreciate it. Juliet, I'm so happy to talk to you about the show that we both love. Thank you for taking time to do it. Thank you for having me. This is an absolute delight. I loved it. And Juliet, are you are you uh, are you a mayor head? Have you been watching Mayor of Easttown? Oh my god, I fucking love Mayor, and I've been so deep on Mayor of Easttown Reddit. I I just cannot wait for Sunday. I'm inc- I'm like gonna be really sad when it's over, but I absolutely love it. I think well, John I'll... did it, and okay. and Billy was part of cleaning it up, and that's why he was bloody. 
And I don't know what's going on with the teens. I'm confused about the teens. I think that this, the friend found a picture of um, Aaron and John. I can say nothing. Uh, I know, because you've seen I, it. I, I've seen it. Um, but I'll use this opportunity not just to flex about that, but just to remind people, I think Chris and I said this at the top of the show, but our Mayor of Easttown finale episode, which is all of our thoughts about it, and uh, an interview with creator Brad Inglesby will run Sunday night, not Monday. We'll, it'll be up live wait. once the show is done airing, uh, I think, on the West Coast. So tune in for that. I'm so excited. Chris and I will be back next week. I know, it's so, isn't it fun having, like, oh, between I having Top it. Chef and Mayor, obviously we do this on the podcast, but it's so good to have good shows. It's so fun. Also, I, I think you probably know this. I'm, like, very anti-binge television. I love week well, by yeah. week. You and, and I are like, like, you and I share I, this. I do not want to binge Mayor of Easttown. I'm so happy no. that I've watched it week by week. I've had time to think about it. It's built. It's this communal experience. Everyone loves Mayor. It's just, oh, I love it. Everything about it. It's great. I completely agree. And and this was like old school for us on this show because we could, I mean, on our podcast about Mayor, because yeah. we could just take our time and enjoy it and be surprised and be a part of it with everyone. And HBO sent us all of them, but we wouldn't <laughs> do it. We refused nice. to watch them. Because nice. that's not fun. That's not I know, the point. It's really, it's really not. I just love, I love Mare. I'm so grateful that the show has come to us. It's wonderful. Think about how big the Queen's Gambit would have been if that had been a non-binge. You are preaching to the choir. <laughs> how fun would that have been week to I know. week? Oh, chess. I know. I would, but it would have taken over. I mean, it. it's a testament to the show that it kind of did take over. Yeah. A larger cultural conversation and discourse in the middle of a pandemic winter. I mean, that is hard to do for any show, let alone a chess show that's already that's available in one night on Netflix. And yeah. so, it's great. I love a, a weekly watch. Give it to me always. Once again, we are dispro- we are proving that it's a fallacy that good radio comes from <laughs> conflicting viewpoints. We this is like Top Chef itself. We all, we're, we're good pals. We're agreeing in the kitchen and out of it, and it's fun to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Thanks for joining us, Julia. We'll be back next week for Anskis. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.